0: You're listening to the podcast of Shady Grove Presbyterian Church. The purpose of this podcast is to help you grow in your walk with Christ and apply his word to your life. My name is Ben Hine and I'm one of the pastors here at Shady Grove and I'm joined by three other guests this morning. We have Senior Pastor Charlie Bale. We also have Mike Nola and Becca Locos and we're glad that all of you are here with us this morning. Uh, We're going to be jumping into Mark chapter 11 in just a moment. But as always, we're going to have a start with a reflection question here for discussion. And that question uh, has to do with discipleship. In the book of Mark, one of the themes that we've been discussing is um, being a disciple. And the end of even chapter 10, we were just talking about um, how for Mark, being a disciple is life with Jesus, which might be the simplest definition that you could give of being a disciple is it's life with Jesus. Jesus. And so I just want to hear from each of you, um, um, what is a moment or a season in your own life where your understanding of discipleship radically shifted? What was a moment in your life where your understanding of discipleship radically shifted? And so like what happened and how did it change your understanding of life with Christ? And uh, Becca, we're going to start with you. Oh, boy. <laughs> um.
1: Well, I I hadn't set on it <laughs> on,
0: on the spot now
1: on the answer yet, but I I guess if I think of it in terms of instead of picking just a moment, but like a, a season more of, I think for me um, a big transition has been. Of course, I know that I have always been saved by grace, um, but actually living that out and seeing that as a growing as far as like oh now I'm a disciple of Jesus, so that that should look like very much obedience and so like kind of measuring faithfulness by following rules and Mm while that certainly needs to be growing uh i think there was a very large transition into understanding um and walking in grace and i learned that more as i started leading other people and Mm -hmm. i would like i had one very clear moment where the first time i interned at as for the youth group, I like kind of lost it with some mm. kids because they weren't following and the rules were there for their protection, but they mm-hmm. were just like so outright. And that was the first time I had to go and apologize because mm. I was like, that was not <laughs> done well.
2: I, I think I heard about this. Yeah. Right? That <laughs> yeah, Becca, Becca I, has the potential here. Yeah, wow. I,
1: got, I got pretty
2: Did you mad. make a whip and like,
1: you know. <laughs> Yeah, but it was just, and it was realizing like, um, I was learning to walk in grace and live in Jesus's grace. Yeah. And that needed to be reflected yeah. as I learned to right. That's how I grow is by experiences, his grace. And so showing yeah. it to others um, and just watching that take over every part of life. Um, yeah.
0: That's good. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't know that story. I didn't know Becca had that. Becca had the Inf- inner. Yeah, Inf- most people yeah. are
1: always like, I've never seen you angry, but you don't. Yeah. Yeah. You don't, you'll know when I'm really angry. Oh boy.
0: Oh boy. Well, thanks for sharing that, um, Mike. How about how about you?
3: Uh, I grew up in the church, so uh, I think I had a tendency of taking Christianity for granted, mm-hmm. only because it was so familiar. When I was uh, in my twenties, the early twenties, I remember, <clears throat> uh, you know, reading through the Gospels uh, and Jesus' uh, comment about discipleship in Matthew 16, Mark 8, and uh, Luke 9 where he says, if anyone would come after me, he should uh, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In Luke, um, in Luke's version, the, the word daily is there, take up your cross daily and follow me. And that, um, that rocked me back on my heels for days, because not only the idea of daily taking up your cross, but coming to the understanding that taking up your cross doesn't mean suffering necessarily, it means death. Mm-hmm. um and so i mean that was just that was a really difficult um hurdle to get over um only because i only because of my familiarity with christianity but not complete immersion or involvement mm-hmm. and uh, so that was uh that that was a moment that uh i had to think about for literally days on end before it actually i came to grips with it yeah
0: yeah yeah that's good Thanks for sharing that, Mike. Charlie, how about you?
2: It's in the concept of beware of coming down from the mountain. And it seems in Scripture that whenever somebody has this mountaintop experience with the Lord, like Moses, they come down from the mountain, and all chaos is breaking loose. You know, in this story of James, Peter, James, and John are up on the mountain with Jesus, they come down, and it's just a mess. And... I think it's kind of a picture of our life that, for me, like a couple of mountaintop experiences was, you know, as a young believer, Christian college, you've got this great Christian cocoon, bubble. I thought I was Mr., you know, like God's gift of ministry or something and was the student government president, whatever, whatever that means. And after I got done with college and thought I would be this hero in New York City and ride a skateboard and tell people about Jesus. I had to do this thing called raise support and um I absolutely flunked at raising support and every door to get to New York was just closed in my face and it was just like one heartbreak after another and disappointment to the point where I thought I I remember telling my friends God can't use me for nothing. Mm. And um and that was and it was soon after that that a door opened up for me but um, and then another time was like the first day my first day of ministry I mean, I was just so naive. I was hired by this church, and I'm not ordained yet, but I've been hired, and I am a pastor now, and my first day of work, one of the other pastors said let's 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 take a ride and he 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 started with wounds from a friend can be trusted oh, no. and he proceeded to just rail and rail and rail on me. And I realized, man, I've taken this job, but basically I've stepped on a couple you know, basically some other people's positions got moved and I I didn't have friends. Okay. This was not a friend to be trusted. And it was just a real wake-up reality, like, huh, I guess ministry's not all just this wonderful experience of like it was really hard. Hard, and it was just a reminder that the church is messy, and ministry is going to be full of a lot of heartaches, and a lot of times you're expecting the the knife to hit you um, in the chest, but when it hits you in the back, you're just not expecting that. But you got to wear your armor on both sides, and um, sheep bite, and unfortunately shepherds bite back, and I've had to learn to yeah that lesson so
0: yeah yeah well um thanks for sharing that and clearly the lord has opened up many doors for ministry for you and made your ministry effective but uh yeah it's it's hard and i guess my story is a little bit like that and a little bit like what you shared too mike well it's really a combination of all three of you guys um neva and i have sometimes joked that Especially our first like five or six years because we didn't become Christians until you know her last year of college and for me I think I was twenty three so two years out of college and so we kind of joked that our first five or six years of being a Christian was like twenty three like God was taking twenty three years or twenty four years of being a Christian and cramming it all into five so that we could like catch up to (laughs) to, like what we needed to know about what it means to live as a Christian because it was just it was tumultuous our first you know five or six years was just like one thing after another. And for me, I really got rocked. Like from year two to year five, as a Christian, was just it was like life on the life on the seas, like with the storm. And in my first two years, so um, my early walk with the Lord, um, you know, everything just seemed to go my way. Everything seemed to go my way. So I was You're you know, on the mountain. I was on the mountain. <laughs> uh, I was you know I was I was single. Um, so like time, I could do whatever I want want with my time. Um, uh, and so I had enough time to go to church, be involved with, you know, a Bible study, work out twice a day, uh, do it like do so like anything, socials, whatever I wanted to do. Um, I was working in software design and architecture, so uh, I was making good money and I could eat out whenever I wanted and hang out with people and everything was just seemed to be going my way. Um, and I assumed, right, I assumed that now that I'm about to start uh, seminary to pursue ministry intentionally, that it's going to be like supercharged now, you know, so that I'm going to go like life is good. and It's going to go from good to great. Right. Cause the Lord's clearly going to bless that. I'm giving my life to him in ministry. And it was <laughs> just like, just a big backhand across the faith. Like, so going from year two to year three, when I started in seminary, you know, it was just one thing after another. Right. So the church where I was on part-time staff, said, you know, to get out because I'm a Calvinist. And then my job that I was working at making good money said, you can't work here anymore because you're taking night classes and we expect you to work 10 to 12 hour days in D.C. So, you know, you can't work here anymore. And, uh, you know, so now I'm starting seminary, starting seminary as a churchless, jobless living in D.C. I'm like, how am I going to afford this? Right. So then that and then all this working out twice a day and doing martial arts, all of a sudden, my body just shut down on me. Was, I had was three this surgeries.
2: When the, when the woman pinned you, in it, it was you in that. It was out. roughly <laughs> in that season, but
0: I didn't get a, sustain an injury from that one. But uh, I had three surgeries back to back on my left arm. That just like shut me down for two or three. So all of a sudden, I wasn't able to work out anymore. Um, and it just really felt like. I mean, I could just go on, right? And it just really felt like going from on top, everything's going my way, to on bottom, and I just, I have no idea what's happening next. And it was a very discouraging season in a lot of ways, but it was really through this time and now kind of making it on the other side of that three years period where this was kind of all happening um, was really learning that uh, being a disciple, this kind of gets to what all of you have said, like being a disciple really means crucifying our own self-interest and that following Jesus is not a means uh to accomplish what i want right and it's not a means to get the lord's blessing on what i want but it's really to give up what i want uh to get something better but just because it's better doesn't mean it's not going to be harder right which maybe kind of gets into something like what mike said you know, picking up this cross um might not always mean suffering um, but it does mean death and death is hard and so it was just really this pruning season of really changing my expectations of what it meant to follow jesus Mm -hmm. and um that's a lesson you know and i think just my last reflection on that is that's a lesson that only the lord can teach us and so you can get up um you know this is a theme that comes up in preaching a lot right like giving up our lives following christ all that we can preach on that until can't preach no more and at the end of the day that's just a, a lesson that only the lord can really teach you um through some season experience you know and um, I guess the best we can do is just prepare people for that. you yeah. know. All right, well, thanks everybody for sharing your stories here. And uh, let's go ahead and jump into Mark chapter 11, which we're now heading into Passion Week. So this uh, Mark is now going to spend 6, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 16 uh, So six chapters, which is a third of the book on Passion Week. Um,
2: Explain Passion Week just for people that think that that's yeah. like romance. No,
0: Passion <laughs> being like Christ, Christ, Christ's death and suffering and death. So we're heading now. So from the tri- triumphal entry coming into Jerusalem is what we call the mark of of Passion Week because he's coming in and he knows what he's coming in to do. He's coming in uh, to accomplish his substitutionary death and suffering on our behalf. And so this is the beginning of Passion Week, which for you know gets into Easter, right? Good Friday, Easter all of that on the church uh, church calendar. So yeah, good question. Uh, but it starts with triumphal entry, right? Uh, riding in on the donkey and everyone throwing their uh, coats and their palm branches down and, you know, Hosanna and all of that. So in light of kind of the Old Testament references, and there's several Old Testament references uh, that this is alluding to. So uh, Psalm 118, Isaiah 9, Jeremiah 23, Zechariah 9, in light of all these Old Testament references, um, what does this passage tell us about Jesus? And maybe what did the people think about Jesus here at this moment? Um, Mike, we're just going to start with you because being the scholar that you are, maybe setting us up for some good context of this passage.
3: Setting you up.
0: Yeah. <laughs> You're going to set out the hard stuff and then we can hit the softballs after this. So. Yeah.
3: Well, I, I think uh, the people... Who knew the Old Testament and the the passages that you just mentioned would see Jesus coming as the Messiah, mm-hmm. uh, the the promised uh, son, uh, the the one who was David's son, who would be restoring um, the kingdom of Israel would be their understanding, and um, the imagery of him coming riding on a colt, the the foal of a donkey. Mm-hmm. Um, would uh, would certainly call these verses to mind if they were steeped in the Hebrew Scripture, which I think probably most of them were.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: So, I mean, their expectation would have been, "Here comes the person that God is sending to deliver us from the Romans," mm-hmm. which is not exactly what Jesus had in mind. Delivery, right. of course, but not uh, not in a political or military sense. Um, <clears throat> I think uh, looking at looking at this episode. There are some things that are going on here uh, that the gospel writers try to get us to understand from their particular perspectives. And I think Mark just give us, gives us the, the data, the way that it happened. Um, in Luke's gospel, we get um, a little more interpretation from Luke's point of view. And that is when Jesus came to Jerusalem and, and is about to uh, <clears throat> have his triumphal entry, he weeps over the city. Mm. Uh, and, and then there are some things that are quoted there and it says, because they didn't recognize the time of their visitation. Mm. And the imagery that's being put up there is that if you think about the Old Testament, when uh, Moses uh, and company built a tabernacle and then there was a dedication ceremony and God's presence was so great there <clears throat> that uh, the people fled, they, they couldn't stay in the in the tabernacle or in the area. Uh, And then later on, if you jump forward to the, uh, after the tabernacle was put away because the temple was built, Solomon had a dedication ceremony. And uh, when that happened, again, he offered a prayer, and God's presence was so great that the people fled from the temple because they couldn't stand to be there with him. Uh, And then when Ezra uh, and company um, and Nehemiah had the second temple built, there, there was a similar dedication. In fact, Ezra tells us about that in chapter six, um, but there was no glory that was being shown there. Uh-huh. When Jesus comes to this second temple uh, in uh, in this part of the gospel, it's God's visitation to the temple itself. Mm. Uh, and um, even if they didn't recognize it, yeah. that's what's intended here. That finally, you know, God is back in the temple again. And Jesus is, you know, for the next week, he's going to be teaching in the temple.
0: Yeah.
3: Um, and of course, initially he we That's good. He ejects the uh the the robber the uh, the people who are selling and uh, mm-hmm. corrupting the temple. Um and again, they they can't stand to be there in the presence of God in the mm-hmm. person in, in the flesh.
0: Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Thanks for some of that context there, Mike. See, we should have started with you. Uh, it was all, all really good. Um, what I think is so interesting uh, that, again, just kind of one of these small things that I hadn't seen before is that uh, this whole big scene, right? Imagine it must have been quite a sight, uh, really amounts to nothing. the The crowd seems to disperse as quickly as it gathered, and this big enthusiastic crowd just Okay, that's it, and then and then they're gone, and I just wonder, you know, if there's something here uh, with going all the way back to the the seed and the sower, uh, the seed that receives the word with joy but has no root and lasts a short time, um, because this crowd like seems so enthusiastic, and then they're just they're just gone. Um, but uh, yeah, would have been must have been quite a sight. So, uh, Charlie or Rebecca, anything to add uh, to this triumphal entry? passage
2: well i mean there's i would agree with both of you and i hadn't even heard some of the things that you just articulated mike that's really helpful and i'm going to use that in the future Future, (laughs) um but it's clearly he's fulfilling old testament scriptures um you know zechariah 9 talks about behold your king is coming to you righteous and having salvation and is he humble and mounted on a donkey which we tend to quote that verse and not the next one, which says, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem in the battle. bow shall be cut off and he shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So this is the idea of this inaugurated kingdom and the king is coming and this rule is going to spread from shore to shore. Um... So he's certainly fulfilling Zechariah 9 and then also with Psalm 118, which was one of the Hallel Psalms that they would sing during Passover week just as we would sing joy to the world and the the weary world rejoices, Mm -hmm. which is our Advent theme this year. And uh, we know those phrases and so they would have known, they all would have been singing Psalm 113 to 118 and they would have been singing blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord and Hosanna, which means Lord save us that the people clearly see the Messiah has come, the crowds are seeing this, and they're wanting Jesus to come and overthrow Roman rule. And Jesus has a much greater oppressor that he's freeing us from, Mm -hmm. and it's from Satan himself and from our sins. And so he's coming to do what they didn't expect he was going to do. They wanted an instant king to ride in and overthrow you know, a physical ruler and Jesus is coming in and overthrowing a spiritual ruler. Mm. Yeah.
1: Well, this is like very completely different. But one thing that I always like about um, this is actually how they go and get the donkey Mm. because they just go and they like take someone's donkey (laughs) and the, the response is the Lord has need of it and that's enough. And then they let it go. And to me, that's always, they don't know what it's going to be used for, that there Mm. is going to be this triumphal entry yet, but the response is the Lord has need of it. And to me, that's just, Mm. (laughs) I can't imagine being the person who, oh, you're taking my (laughs) my
0: donkey. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you know, uh, uh, so I think, you know, we, we miss this reading it with our modern eyes, but, you know, this donkey or the, the cult uh, had um, kingly connotation to it, right? So it was a, uh, we think of it as like, why is he riding a donkey that must be humble, so humble? And it's like, it's like the exact opposite, right? There was a sense of royalty uh, to this. Um, so Jesus is in a sense claiming that for himself. But then you also, if you mix that with this idea of they were expecting the conquering king, I had a professor in seminary, um, Rod Mays, so I know you had, uh, who yeah. who said uh, anyone who rides a donkey into battle knows that they're going to be slaughtered, right? And so you have this kind of like overlapping of ideas of like, yes, he's claiming to be the king, but what he's coming to do is not to hmm. conquer like in victory, but he's coming to be the one who's going to be yeah. slaughtered on our, on our behalf. And so it's really just this sort of, there's all sorts of yeah. imagery in mind here. They're expecting the conquering and yet, it's like this dude's wearing probably no no you know there's no armor or anything and he's just riding this little donkey like what do you really think he's going to do you know, like what
2: how is he supposed to overtake Rome he's uh, coming back in the with the horse
0: Yeah, and, and the armor and suffering all that first
2: yeah. let me ask a question to our scholar here so becca just brought out this the lord needs it and it's ha curios would the reading audience and would they totally get that that means The Lord, like not just like master, but does that does that should that be heightened to us, or could that mean "Eh, a master needs it? But it's you have the definitive article pa curios. What what? How should we understand that?
3: Well, if Becca brought it up, I think Becca should answer. (laughs) I no, in this case, I think it can. It it means sir. It it was used very commonly. Uh, it was, was just a so more common. You would title. say
2: this isn't something specifically that is only referring to the Lord. We
3: we'd we'll be reading into that. Well, it it depends uh, because we're speaking on behalf of the people who were there. I'm sure some of them had the understanding that this is God visiting us, but others, you know, this this is a respectful person, so we address him as sir.
2: So that that term though, it could refer to just. It would be used in the colloquial, not just a reference to deity. Right. Okay. It could, but, but it, it could but be it, either one. I got it. That helps. Thank you.
0: Um, mm-hmm. Well, let's keep going here. And this is, we were talking about before this episode, that this is one of the harder things for us to, the next, this next section of scripture is kind of one of the harder passages to maybe interpret because it's this uh, Jesus cursing the fig tree. So a couple of introductory comments. Um Number one, we're heading into another sandwich, very explicit sandwich. So uh, he's going to curse the fig tree, go into the temple, clear the temple, and then explain the fig tree parable after, right? So very clearly in one of these situations where each three of these units are connected in some way. That's what we're about to talk about is kind of, well, so what is that connection? And that is where this is going to be a little bit difficult because this is kind of known as... Um, it's the only miracle of destruction in the Gospels, right? That Jesus does something supernatural, something miraculous, and it leads to to death for this fig tree, and so that just kind of has a dark, ominous feel to it for good reason. Um, so let's talk about that, uh, and maybe in the big picture now, uh, we'll we'll we can get more specific. But big picture, what do you think is the connection between? The cleansing of the temple, the clearing of the temple, and the cursing of the fig tree, and maybe it's just best to go back to Mike because he said so clearly he has no problem with what's happening here. Uh, so um, that was before the podcast started.
2: Yeah, yeah. So.
3: Well, the thing that I don't have a problem with, is, or that I do have a problem with, is that people who go, "Oh, that poor little fig tree, <laughs> <laughs> it was such a wonderful creation, and now Supposed it's just be gone. hugging and, it." Yeah, Yeah. yeah. <laughs> This is where the original tree huggers <laughs> uh, But I have to ask myself, who created this tree? And, um, and if, if the Lord who creates things uh, had expectations for that tree that were, that were not delivered, why should he not curse it? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's certainly his prerogative. And when in the realm of his jurisdiction, I mean, just because it wasn't the right season... Doesn't mean that the fig shouldn't have been producing figs for the person who created the fig tree to produce figs. Mm-hmm. So I don't have an issue with that. Uh, yeah, I've, in my lifetime, I've cut down a lot of trees.
0: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, and that, you know, um, yeah, I think everything you just said is right, and you know, there is um, in some commentaries a strange sentimental attachment to the tree, which again, we should care about creation and all that. We're not against any of that, but um, it's almost like setting up this tree to be a person you know in significance and that's um but i did a little bit of digging on maybe like the life cycle of a fig tree and uh it was kind of helpful and so uh what i found was that in the life cycle of a fig tree seasonally that um and i I didn't write down the hebrew words here to distinguish this but there's sort of the the non-mature fruit and there's the mature fruit and there's two different words that would have been used but uh, in the life cycle of a fig tree, the buds of the fruit would start growing before the leaves start growing. And so then by the time the leaves grow, you would expect underneath the leaves is fruit, right? Even if the fruit isn't fully ripe yet, underneath the leaves, you would look externally, see leaves, and then say, oh, I can go up. I'm going to find fruit. And so when Jesus goes up and he sees externally, oh, good, this this tree is in season, right? And he goes up and there's no fruit, Um that it's a fruitless tree. And I think that image of externally, it looks like it's going to be, but then you actually go up on close inspection and there's no fruit here. Mm -hmm. And I think that particular idea really connects well with kind of the temple, right? Externally at all the, you know, big temple, lots of people, everything going on, sacrifice, everything going on. It, it was supposed to be in season, right? And upon closer inspection, Jesus gets there and, there's no fruit. There's no fruit there. Um, and so I think that is at least one of the major, major connections here. Um, Becca or Charlie, you want to add anything to that?
1: My thought was just, especially as you guys were talking, it's just that it's not with both the fig tree and the temple and what you said it. Um, they're not what they're promised to mm-hmm. be, and so that's where the judgment came in. Is you're supposed to be bearing this fruit, or um, this is what you are supposed to be for these people, and you're not. Um, so it's just yeah, kind of an empty promise or not fulfilling, right? They they didn't have all the answers um, for what the significance of everything in the temple necessarily, but they still were astray, they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. They weren't welcoming the people that were supposed to be able to be welcomed, things like that. So
0: yeah. And my understanding here, um, sometimes uh, there's I've heard like several different uh add-ons to maybe exactly what was happening here. But my understanding, like maybe big picture of um, you know, not welcoming is really so you have the Gentiles coming and they're coming from a long distance and in this outer court, the court of Gentiles, had become a marketplace of like having to basically buy your sacrifice at exorbitant price. Uh, and it had become a market, right? It had become a money-making scheme. What, so what was supposed to be devotion to God had become an exclusive, uh, money-making scheme to buy what you needed to, uh, sacrifice. And that whole, just that whole idea of making it so hard for people from far off to come in mm-hmm. is really what just infuriates Jesus. Because yeah, we saw in the old Testament, you know, like Isaiah 56, six, Temple is supposed to be a place for all who uh, love the name of the Lord may worship him. And instead, it just becomes this very exclusive, non-welcoming. That's um, just exactly the opposite of what it was intended for. So, I don't know, Mike, do I have that sense, right, of what's happening, The like, big picture? Yeah, I think What's so. going on there?
3: Yeah, I think there's also a, probably a minor connection to the passage that we just read about the rich young ruler, you know, who didn't want to be separated from his money. And it was the same with the money changers in the mm. temple. They didn't want to be separated yep. from their money either. Mm-hmm. But, you know, slightly different outcomes. But I, mm. I think that one, I think the story about the the rich young man sets up this story yeah. to, to see that money connection.
2: They need to throw off their cloak. Mm-hmm. And what? Uh, throw, th- off cloak? throw off the cloak, yeah, 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 yeah. the imagery. But, uh, yeah, I, I've heard it. I think it was Ken Hughes said that the uh, temple had become basically – a combination of the New York Stock Exchange Mm -hmm. and the county fair. And so you have these smelly (laughs) animals and all Mm -hmm. this money. And then it it says here that Jesus, I don't know if it's in this account or another one, that they were basically using it as a Mm cut-through. And he says he wouldn't let them, it was basically, you're going to take a long way around now. Mm -hmm. Like this is no longer going to be the cut-through of like, now you've just turned this completely into, and in Matthew's account it says when he drives them out, then you're able to see the outsiders, these people that need healing, are able to come and they get healed. And uh, they're people that couldn't get to Jesus because of all this clutter. And Jesus junk is what I call a, a lot of stuff that's in the front of Christian bookstore. Yeah. It's like the clutter of, like, just get this stuff out. Yeah. Sorry for those of you like that stuff at the front of the store. <laughs>
0: well, I, I think, yeah, I, I, it was helpful. You know, I went back and just looked at another picture of the temple, right? And so it's hard because you all are listening here. I'll try and describe this well. But if you think of, um, this, this might not be exact, but if you think of the whole temple structure as a square, right? And you would enter in from the bottom side of that square. And so that first big court, that first bottom half of the square, the rectangle, was the court of Gentiles, right? Like everybody could enter there. And that was... This likely this first place that Jesus, this is all happening. The marketplace has been set up in this area where it's the first place that anyone would have come into. Um, even Gentiles were welcome there. And it just had become a, um, an exchange uh, before you could even go deeper into the temple. So then on the other side, so you have the court of Gentiles. Then on the other half of the square, for lack of a better word, on one side, you had the court that women could be in, that Jewish women could be in. And then you had the other side that only men could could go into, and then it was in that side that only men could go into that you also had the Holy of Holies was like the deeper entrance into the temple. So you kind of have these different layers right, of who was allowed where and what had happened was it had become exclusive at the very first layer of the onion, right? The very first layer had become just repealing uh, uh, to um, anyone outside who wasn't a part of of the system.
2: And, And wouldn't you say this is a claim to deity here, that you see like, you You defend your own house in a way that here you're clearing out these, and they're looking at him like, what are you doing? He says, my house. Is it not written, my house? And is a house of prayer for all nations, all the Gentiles. And you've made it into a den of Robert's Robert's quoting from Isaiah 56. But it seems to me it's a clear reference that the Lord is here, the Lord is visiting, and this is my house. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. I think that's another thing, too, then, if you connect it back to the fig tree, is, you know, so the ESV calls this pericope, this section, uh, cleansing the temple. Maybe it's better read like dissolving the temple, um, because it really seems like Jesus is, you know, just like he at the roots of the fig tree, it it had become withered, right? It's what we see next. Um, Jesus is laying an axe to the very the very temple system because he is the new temple he is the new way to god he tells right he tells the woman in john 4 that a time is coming and is now here right where you're not going to worship on this mountain in jerusalem right because it's it's through him that we approach god he is our new temple he is the sacrifice and so it's almost like it's not cleansing he's not cleansing and repairing it's for like a new he's dissolving it right it's it's done and it's it's fruitless and it's time for this to end and so then he leaves you know here and as they passed by, Peter remembered and said, "Look, the fig tree that you cursed has withered." Yeah, and I think I think that's really the connection here is that Jesus, like this is done, the fig tree is done. Um,
2: so, question for Mike on this: the <laughs> one, one I've always stumbled over too that some with John, it's put early in in John this account, and some have speculated that there's two temple cleansing events. Are there two or are there one?
3: One. <clears throat> and I think the reason that John puts it early is because he's not interested in chronology. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, although the Matthew, Mark, and Luke are broadly chronological, they're not exactly completely chronological either. But John's whole write, reason for writing is uh, to, to put together a tract that tells people about belief. And the, the, the person who reads his gospel by the author's intention is to be brought to belief. And so it doesn't really matter— um the order of the episodes. I mean, if and of course, John had no constraints to do, or any of the gospel writers, to write in a certain kind of way. If they wanted to tell the gospel story by starting with Jesus' crucifixion and seeing his life as flashbacks when he's mm-hmm. on the cross, that's perfectly within their realm. They can tell the story however they want to. And John's choosing to tell the story so that you get the incarnate word at the beginning. Um, you get uh, a series of seven miracles that Jesus does, and, and there were there were no duplicates there. And then after chapter eleven, for the whole rest of the book, you you rush right into the last week of Jesus' life, his his time mm-hmm. with his disciples, uh, and that sort of thing, and, and uh, eventually leading up to his death and resurrection. And in in the process. Uh, the very personal touch here in John is that you you get a series of interviews, one-on-one interviews that happened mm. with uh, Jesus mm-hmm. and Nicodemus, Jesus mm-hmm. and the woman at the well in chapter four, Jesus and the blind man, and it goes on like mm-hmm. that. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, John has a completely different reason for writing, and if he wants to, you know, arrange the information in whatever way that suits his purpose, um, he's not writing chronologically. Yeah. Thank you. Long answer Glad you're here.
0: Yeah. Well, I think, you know, and I'm sure Mike has a lot to say about this, but I think it's important for modern readers and Christians to know, because maybe this type of stuff comes up when we're talking about the Bible with non-Christians, is why is there differences between the Gospels? And I think it's important to point out that ancient history was not as concerned with chronology as modern history. So you read history today, and it's very much like this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And... Displacement was more allowed, and rearranging to make a certain point was more allowed in in this particular genre of history in ancient times. It's maybe not as, but like you mentioned, like TV series do this; they'll show you the you know Law and Order right would show you like what happened, and then go back and trace like what led up to you know. It, so you have this in some storytelling today, but just like the history was not as concerned with this happened, this happened, which is one reason why. And Mike, we've talked about this before. The efforts to harmonize the gospels are good and can be helpful, but not if it flattens distinctions, right? Because each writer is unique, and there's a reason why we have four, and we don't want to flatten their distinctions either. I guess, right? Point. So um, I don't know. I'm yeah. sure, Mike, you have a lot, like a lot to say on this, but I'll just uh, say one more thing yeah. and I'll let
3: it go. Because we're Westerners, you know, our our very way of thinking has been influenced by Aristotle and Isaac Newton. It's mm-hmm. called the Aristotelian Newtonian mindset. But Easterners, uh, people who live in the Near East and Middle East, don't think that way. And the people who wrote our New Testament um, are not Westerners. Yeah. <laughs> so if, if we're going to understand what they're doing, we have to understand who they are and what their propensities are and how they're different from us. And then not use our values mm-hmm. to um, try to shape what they were saying. What they, what they were saying made perfect sense in, in their milieu.
0: Yeah. Chronological snobbery, as C.S. Lewis says. We yeah, can't be, yeah, there you go. <laughs> Can't be snobs about um, how we think it should, should have been. Uh, well, let's apply a little bit of what Jesus uh, says here about the fig tree. So he cleanses or dissolves the temple. Uh, and then, you know, the disciples ask him about the fig tree. And he responds with this teaching on faith uh, in verses um, 22 to 25. And he says, In verse 24, I tell you, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And this is one of these verses that can sometimes be misunderstood and misapplied to say that, um, you know, if you have enough faith, then whatever you pray will be answered. And that if you pray something and it's not answered the way you want, then it was because of a lack of faith. I think some people really struggle with this. We talked some about suffering in a previous episode, but I think some people really struggle with this. Um, I think it's important that we always have the perspective that Jesus had. So, how might you, in a counseling situation, someone struggling with this, really like I'm praying and it doesn't seem to be answered? Does this mean I don't have faith? How might you respond to them? And, and Becca, we're going to start with you. Becca's, you know, getting a counseling degree, and uh, so what would you say to someone who's really struggling with? um, We're dying to hear struggling with this.
1: Um, well, I think we're called to pray with a confident expectation mm-hmm. that our prayers will be answered, and they're not necessarily going to be answered in the way we think, right? What we're When we're praying faithfully, we're praying for faith um, mm-hmm. and for God's will to be done, um, and that's not necessarily going to look like what we think we are. But I think, like, even myself, when I pray, how often do we really pray with a whole lot of confidence and expectation of I am praying for this and you can make it happen. You will make it happen. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. Uh, I, I mean it is kind of challenging, but even the next verse, um, whenever you stand praying, forgive if you have anything against anyone so that your father also who is in heaven may forgive you your trespasses. But we're not Mm -hmm. saying that because I forgive somebody, I now can receive forgiveness. It is Mm -hmm. the very forgiveness that we have received that makes it necessary that we forgive others and if we're not forgiving others and we haven't really understood that we're receiving so um yeah it's it's a call to pray confidently and with expectation yeah Um,
0: yeah you know and i think that's so so important because um i mean jesus says that we are I like what you said about confident expectation jesus says we are to be so confident and expected in prayer that we ought to pray like something in the future has already happened Mm -hmm. So he says, whatever you ask in prayer, believe that you have already received it, and it will be yours, right? So it's believe so confidently, pray as if you've already received the answer to your prayer. And I think uh, in the Christian life, it can become so easy to, as we've, maybe if we've prayed for things, we've prayed for healing, we've prayed for whatever, and we don't see our prayers being answered the way that we wanted, to slowly become less expectant hardened in our hearts maybe even cynical in our prayers Mm -hmm. and really just kind of have this like i'll pray but i'm not expecting the lord to really answer this i would say there's a balance
2: here between you've got expectation over here on the dial and then you've got acceptance Mm -hmm. and the acceptance would be i've prayed three times for this thorn to go away and god says my grace is sufficient you need to accept and but over here you've got expectation and I think if you had to say, if you took this as a dial and you say, where are Presbyterians on the dial? You know, are we more on the expectation side or the acceptance side? And it'd be like, eh. the dial would be cranked over to the right side over onto acceptance. And I think that we probably, you know, if I was speaking more to a charismatic audience or, you know, a Joel Osteen kind of mindset of, you know, this sounds just like, uh, health and wealth gospel, and blab it and grab it, name it and claim it, theology, where they just jump to that. Then I would probably try to hit them more with the acceptance verses. But I think Presbyterians, our, our mindset is we're too quickly, like we, we get discouraged, and then we it, it hurts too much to even ask. So I'm just discouraged. I've, I've lost heart. There's a, cynic, a low-grade cynicism that we don't really really pray for much and expect God to do much. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of like an axe where they're praying for Peter to be released. And when he comes knocking on the door, they shut. They won't even open the door. When they do, they shut it in his face because it can't be. It can't be Peter. I mean, we're praying for his release, but there's no way he's gonna be here in front of us. I mean, forget that. Yeah. And I think God does answer prayer. And I think um, here, I mean, obviously, it's not meant to be taken taken literally because if it was truly taken literally. We'd be seeing mountains every day being moved to the heart of the sea, and boy, we would—that would make for a lot of chaos in our world if we're constantly seeing mountains crashing. Um, so he's meant—it's meant to get our attention that God can do the impossible.
0: Yeah. Well, here's another connection um, that I had—one of these connections here in Mark, connecting chapter ten. We talked about the cup, right? Chapter 11 here, this prayer. Also in chapter 10, we connected back to um, the father of the epileptic son. And Jesus responds both times with, you know, all things are possible for God. Right? Well, what does Jesus pray in the garden in Mark 14? Mark 14, 36. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Right? Yet not what I will, but your will be done. So here he's been teaching the disciples and showing them through miracles that all things are possible for God Uh, to pray with expectation that if you have faith, you know, God will answer. And then here, of course he has faith, right? I mean, he's, he's the perfect son of man, son of God. And he acknowledges that all things are possible for God, just as he's been teaching his disciples, Mm -hmm. but he, in his human will, right? He does not want the cup, right? He says, so please, if, if I know you can remove this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done I think there's just so much yeah. packed in then to that verse 36 in light of what he's yeah. been teaching in in Mark uh, and, and, and keeping at it kind of like the two dials like you're mentioning keeping then that in and, in and the I like
2: text. to say that you know the Pentecostals pray the first half of the prayer and the Presbyterians pray the second <laughs> half and that the second half is nevertheless not my will be done but yours and we tend to pray that and not the first half. Yeah. and whereas other side wants to just pray for the the miracle and not nevertheless but we have to pray both halves of the prayer in trusting ourselves and believing both like in yeah. accepting whatever the will is but pleading with the Lord to let this cup pass mm-hmm. if that's your will but nevertheless help me regardless but this is my heart's desire
0: yeah yeah well let's uh, jump to the end here of chapter 11. And um, we have the authority of Jesus being challenged. So he's been, you know, he's heading into the, this is the end the end stretch, right? And so he's just cleared out the temple and done all this and likely to draw attention from <laughs> some religious leaders. And that's exactly what happened. So we have this conflict over authority here at the end of chapter 11. What exactly are the religious leaders asking when they say, by what authority are you doing these, these things? What What are they really getting at um, and uh, okay, Charlie's pointing to Mike, so I have to we're going to Mike again. Uh, what What is it that they're really getting at here? Mike,
3: <laughs> what are they getting at, Mike? Well, <laughs> um I think that one of the things they're doing is um seeing Jesus as somebody who's not legitimately educated uh in their schools, mm. and so you know if if he said... If they asked the question and Jesus said, well, Gamaliel gave me this authority, they would go, oh, okay, well, he's a great teacher. We we get that. Um, And it's one of their ways of saying, you're not one of us. You, you You don't belong here. You don't have the authority to do the things that you're doing. And so tell us where you got it. And and of course, it's a trap as well. I think from other passages, we know that their understanding is that he's able to work miracles because he's in league with Satan Mm -hmm. uh, or Beelzebub. Uh, So anyway, it's one of their traps for him. And uh, of course, he doesn't
0: take the bait. Yeah. So it's not so much what he did, but his right to do it. Yeah. I mean, what is your right? Mm -hmm. Why do you have the right to do this? Um, Either of you have anything to add to that? So why why would they be so concerned about this? Why are they so concerned about authority and the the right to do to do these things?
2: What everything that they've clung to and where they get all of their kudos and their authority and their and their power and their Identity. I mean, everything is wrapped up in the temple, and Jesus has just come and wreaked havoc and cleansed it. And then this is where the the money is and their livelihood. I mean, everything's riding on this, and they kind of see Jesus as such a threat that that you know that in the John's account, you know, the whole world is going after him. And man, we need to just kill Lazarus too while we're at it. I mean, you know, he everybody's gonna and basically they're gonna he's gonna take everybody away from us. So they just completely saw him as a rival because he's not one of us. He's not fitting in. Clearly, he's not truly one of us. Look what he's doing to the Sabbath. He's completely undermining all that we stand for, all that we are. So we got to get rid of him. Mm. Yeah,
1: I think the question, like kind of thinking of it as who are you to come in and like wreck my world, basically, it makes sense because he is wrecking their world in all of their greatest fears, right? They're yeah. they're true. And that's kind of what Jesus does. He turns it back on them and highlights um, you're not willing to accept who I am and to like humble yourself in that way and to accept this judgment. But then you're also not willing to um like go against the people who you you live for their approval. And so you're not willing to say, oh well. John's just from man because you know that they won't agree, and so then you lose there. So either way, it, they're really stuck. Um, yeah. But it, their response does make sense because he is taking away all of what their security is in.
3: Right. The passage that Charlie mentioned, John chapter eleven, uh, the high priest says, "You know, if we don't stop him, he'll he'll take away our place and our nation." Mm-hmm. So their their primary concern is. You know, if we let this guy keep on doing what he's doing, we're going to be out of a job real soon. Mm-hmm. And then if it keeps on going after that, we're going to be out of a nation right after that. Mm-hmm. So.
0: Yeah. I, uh, man, I, I haven't referenced any books yet, I don't think, <laughs> these last two, but I'm going to do another typical Ben thing here lately and talk about The Chosen because yeah. this is another thing I think they just <laughs> nail I was in waiting, the show. Ben. I know, I know. I've been waiting. I just, so in the episode where they show the man being lowered from the roof um, and Jesus heals the man, and um, there's one particular um, Pharisee who uh, really is, ups, has been upset about John the Baptist, really been upset about Jesus the whole time. And he's contrasted with Nicodemus, who Nicodemus is continually kind of being opened to Jesus being who he said he is. And so he comes to the window, like when this man's lowered in, about to be healed, and he's, he's banging on the window. He says, hey, hey, you, like wh- where did you study? Huh? Like, who 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 did you teach from? Like, are you from? We know there's no one in Nazareth, so like, who who is it? Right? He like really wants to know, and then later uh, he he gets into a conflict with Nicodemus, and Nicodemus is trying to push him to say, um, shouldn't we be open to maybe our understanding of of what it says in the you know the Old Testament being being wrong, or sh- and shouldn't we be then open that God has come to to, to show us the fullness of what He had said before? And the, the Pharisees, the solar Pharisees' response is no, because uh, it's either, I can't remember which, which way he says it, but I'm pretty sure he says, God is the law, is his response. God is the law. Like, it, it has to be this way, or there's no other way. And it just really kind of sets up the seriousness of where does the authority come from? Is it from our understanding of the Torah, or is it from God himself? And clearly for these religious leaders, it was it has to be us, right? It has to be us. And that's um, so that's a big deal. As, as Mike just said, like <laughs> if it's not us, then we're out of a job. We're like we're done, right? And so it's clearly a threat for them. Um, well, why is uh, his answer, why is Jesus's response and his question uh, so effective? What do you guys think?
2: Well, it's it's one of those questions of the predetermination of your heart is going to determine whether I'm even going to answer the question because clearly they're in the horns of a dilemma with John and they clearly realized everybody recognized him as a prophet and he didn't go to to prophet school he didn't go to the right uh, teaching and and training of the right rabbinical school and all that stuff so here's somebody that they're saying they would have said they, they didn't want to land on that because mm-hmm. it's kind of what like Mike's saying you're not one of us well what about John? Was he one of you? And where did his authority? And all the crowds recognized he was a prophet. And everybody was coming to be baptized. And you guys, you clearly if you can't answer that, then it's not even it's not even worth my time to try to answer you because I'm I think it was a very effective answer.
3: Yeah, I think one of the clever things here that shows us about Jesus is that he's he's being asked a question that would put him at odds with the Pharisees and probably with the crowd. And by returning a question for the question, he's actually putting the crowds against the Pharisees. <laughs> <laughs> clever, clever way to answer a question. Brilliant. Yep.
1: Yeah, you said earlier, Mike, that um, they were setting Jesus up, trying to trap him, but really Jesus traps them, but they're trapped in their own like mm-hmm. reasoning and understanding. He's not mm-hmm. having to put anything against them. He's just, by asking the question, he's forcing them to realize that they're trapped in their own um, values and ideas.
0: Yeah. Well, so he asked the question, and then they discussed it with one another. <laughs> All right. And well, if we say this, then they're going to think this, and we say that, we're well, going to think that. So they just respond to him, "We do not know." All right. And I think just pausing there, maybe hear it coming into the end. Mm-hmm. Is it that they didn't know, or they didn't want to know? All right. Is it that they didn't know or they didn't want to know and so like what coming to the end of this conversation what are the practical implications for us today as disciples as Christ followers what do we learn here
2: i think that's a very good apologetic approach to talk to people to say when they when they claim to be agnostic or you know i remember one of my neighbors just said i don't i don't think any of us can can know the way and that kind of thing and and my response was I think that a lot of the time we really don't want to know, Mm -hmm. and I just kind of left it like for him to think about. I mean, I think they didn't want to know, and I think that's the deeper problem. And just trying to plant a seed of like, perhaps that you know we've already made a determination because we're scared Mm -hmm. of what the outcome would be.
1: Yeah, I think we can think that way also, just in the specifics of our own life of it seems too hard to apply the gospel to the situation. So if I just kind of say, oh, I don't know, that's easier than thinking this is how God speaks into it. And it's going to make it that much harder to address Mm -hmm. this or something like that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, um, it's kind of, uh, you know, to Becca's point there, it's almost like, um, if we can't be honest with ourselves, um, we're not going to we're not going to we're not going to be honest about Jesus either. You know, if we can't be honest about our own on you know our lack of willingness to follow him, then we're not going to be honest about what Jesus says either, obviously. So um man, this mark just like really tough for religious folks, man. <laughs> like the the following Jesus as a religious as a person who claims to follow God is hard. Uh and Jesus really mm-hmm. Shows us all the ways, holds up a mirror to us, you know, in Mark's gospel and really shows us all the ways that we can actually turn from him, even when we're claiming to follow him. So, uh, well, uh, barring any last thoughts, this will be the end of Mark chapter 11. So thanks. Uh, thanks, you all for for discussing this with us. And thank you all for listening. And uh, we will take a break for a week, the week after Thanksgiving, but then we'll come back and we'll record uh, a few more episodes in December. That'll take us right up into Christmas. So I hope you all have enjoyed sticking with us in this podcast so far. We're enjoying doing it. And until next time, take care, everybody, and uh, have a good Thanksgiving.